So one of the things, Mane, that I uh, wanted to talk about today is, is that you and I were involved in a settlement conference. And without divulging the client's name or client confidences, I wanted to talk a little bit about that experience because it was like a day and a half or almost two full days of a grind out settlement conference using a retired judge. Uh, did you get your energy back? Um, I did. Monday felt like it was just a continuation of Friday. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I had a break in between because we got back into it. But um, yeah, definitely a, a good learning experience for sure. Yeah. How did you feel about doing it here versus uh, going to the office of the of the mediator? Like, you know, usually we'd have to drive at least downtown and spend a, a day there, you know, and do it there versus doing it in our office over Zoom. Um, well, I felt like because the client was in the room with us, at least for one of the sessions, um, it was that part was not too different. Um, the fact that we could see the judge through Zoom rather than just being audio, I thought helped. Um, it I felt like it was more efficient um, and gave us more time because of we didn't have to drive. And it was I felt like the judge was you know, going back and forth between the, the different breakout rooms through in Zoom, which was efficient. Um, I I don't think we really lost anything by doing it through Zoom um, versus if we were to do it in person. I thought it was just as efficient, if not more. Yeah. I At a networking event I was in this morning, there was a mediator that said that they're settling as many cases over Zoom than they did in person. I'm really hoping that it continues to do that after COVID. Uh, because of, I, mostly because of the comfort. I mean, driving down there and then being in some strange place where you never really feel at home or here in the office, we could we could relax. I mean, you know, you just walk out the door and you get a, a really discomfort feeling, you know, and so there's that that feeling. And I, and I think that there was less uh, formalities involved. You know, when you go to those places, they provide you with lunch, you know, and you take this long break and it's ho, 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 ha, you know, and they're kind of like they're the host. We're here, you know, it, we're all on the same page and stuff. And I, I really liked it. I didn't see any problems at all with uh, looking at documents. In fact, it was a lot faster mm -hmm. than because, you, you know, when you do a mediation downtown, you're sitting in a, one room, the other side's on the other side of the office building, and the mediator is walking back and forth. You could be hours waiting for you know, to hear from the mediator, you know. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it. And I think that this COVID lockdown stuff is really going to permanently change a lot of what we do, including court appearances, because we're doing a lot of those over the telephone, you know, and I just hope that we do do that because it's, it's making our jobs more, you know, uh, more efficient, I think, for our clients, you know, the client gets was more relaxed here, too. You know, I mean, you know, in this particular case, she's in our home, she she's comfortable with us, you know, and there isn't that like real scared thing about being around the other side. I, I thought it was interesting, too, in that, um, you know, at the end of the mediation and even throughout the mediation, people still behave the same, right? I mean, at one point, me and the mediator, uh, not me, me and the opposing counsel uh, got into it, you know, right at the end, you know, and so there still is this, you know, uh, adversary thing that goes on. And, you know, as, as you get worn down towards the end of the day, you get tired, you know, and people's patience get very thin, especially when you're like this close to a settlement. And there's suddenly an issue. And he was, you know, he was pressing on us to accept an issue. And I said, no. And that really ticked him off, you know, and stuff. And what that did is it led us to 
day two. We had to come back the next week and resolve that issue. You know, so I want to talk to you about that issue before we talk about the decision we're going to decide today because it's kind of similar. Uh, do you remember what it is? It was about the uh, whether or not the parties would have to share the taxes and the sale of a family residence. Take it from there. Yes. So uh, just to add a little bit to what you were saying, for me, it was better because I was kind of typing up the agreement as we discussed it. It was better for me to be in my own office at times be able to use my monitor to type it up as the judge was speaking versus, you know, fumbling through papers or trying to type it up on my laptop if we were to go in person. And we also got to use our whiteboard, which was great. So um, so I definitely think even if we start going in person again, I think a lot of people are going to opt out and do it through Zoom. Yeah, I prefer it that way. Um, so, yeah, it was I, I, I do recall the issue. Um and I was very upset that, you know, it was like one of the last few edits we had to the agreement and we had to stop for that day. But I think that resulted in our client getting a better deal the following day. So the issue had to do with um, dividing the family residence, which is valued at about $3 million. And our client had a significant um, reimbursed 2640 reimbursement claim. Okay, based- and so 2640 is a family code section mm-hmm. 2640. And it says that if you put your separate property money into a community property, like either pay down of the principal or as a down payment, you get that reimbursed dollar for dollar right off the top, right? Correct. And okay. she also paid for some improvements she wanted reimbursed. So she had for. a large reimbursement coming to her when the house sells. So she gets, let's say that's $300,000, then they pivot to the community and say, now let's divide that, mm-hmm. right? So coming out of it, she's going to have a larger portion Correct. than he is. Okay, She's going to have a larger portion. I think her portion, let's say, was 300000 and his, let's say, was, or the community's was um, 150 let's say. So um, they wanted the agreement to state that at that time when the money was received, um, the taxes would be in proportion, the capital gain tax would be in proportion to what they actually received versus equally divided. And we said, no, that's not the case because actually capital gains is looked at in terms of ap- actual appreciation versus what portion um, somebody gets. Right. So, and then we had the help of our great forensic accountant help us articulate it. And we had some case law to support this as well. But the argument that we made is, is that when uh, they get into joint title, I mean, the community is the community. And it, that's, you know, the house appreciates. It doesn't necessarily appreciate because somebody put a, a 26, four, you know, some money into the house as a down payment. Right. right. It wouldn't be yeah. fair to pay more for contributing more in the beginning. That yeah. didn't make sense to yeah. us. Yeah. And so fortunately, and like you said, it was kind of a good thing that we did get a second day because I think opposing counsel uh, got to think about it. Mm-hmm. But the mediator herself got to think about it because when we came back, we went on the bandwagon and we all argued, me, you and Jennifer and the mediator were like, oh, you know, that makes sense. And then she went back and we settled the issue. And we cited some cases. I think that helped yeah. also. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you today about the particular decision we're going to talk about because it involves uh, something similar to that. It involves uh, what? What's the what's the main issue of the case? So the main issue in this case was whether – so wife had a, um, a separate community Uh, vacation home in Lake Tahoe. They got married during the marriage. They used community funds to pay for the mortgage on the property, which included um, 
I believe the interest as well as the principal plus I think taxes, the property taxes and a husband wanted to get reimbursed of the community to get reimbursed for not just paying down the principal but also for the um, property taxes and um, the um, the interest on the mortgage. So unlike the case that we just talked about where we were talking about uh, obligation to pay taxes, mm-hmm. this is a reimbursement case. So we're not trying to confuse them, but it's just kind of interesting that we've got another nuance to you know some property here. And what's the name of the case? Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I think marriage of Navai and Clemenus. And what's the citation? The citation is um, actually that's probably that's here. a slip opinion, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let me see. It was certified for partial publication. Yeah, it's uh, like Navelle and Clemunes. It's K L E M U N E S. Correct. Right at the top of the, the the year, we get this case, and it's a pretty significant case when you when you look at it. So, if I understand the, what you're saying, the issue is is that um, wife comes into the marriage with this separate property uh, cabin or property that's mm-hmm. in Lake Tahoe, and it's a beauty, right? Because everybody loves to go to Lake Tahoe, and this is something that it's so nice that she's able to rent out a lot, right? Yeah, they rented it out for most of the skiing season, and then they would sometimes on and off use it um, a couple of months out of the year just for their own benefit. Okay, and throughout the duration of this marriage, and I think it was a fairly long-term marriage, um, they're paying the mortgage, uh, you know, with community money. Right. uh, Maybe making some improvements with community money Mm -hmm. and uh, taxes, the property taxes, taxes right, yes. and things like that. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, this couple broke up, right? Uh, say, we as, hear the story all the time. Happens. Yeah, what is it? Is it in our line of work? We always have to say, <laughs> unfortunately, they broke up. So, anyways, then the war is on, right? And he's like, um, I want reimbursement because I, I want reimbursement for this, that, and the other thing, and the taxes that were paid on this from the community. So, uh, was it just the taxes that was the issue in the case? No, I think it was the taxes as well as the interest on the mortgage and, and not just the principal, which is what we, we usually see in our yeah. cases. Now, there was no issue, I, I believe, that husband had a community interest in the property by way of more Marsden, right? That's correct, okay. yes. And he had a forensic calculate that for him. Okay, and the forensic uh, calculated by making some estimations that, you know, is a little different than we normally do. Usually we try to get very precise, you know, so... Uh, can you explain what a more Marsden is? So um, similar to this case, a more Marsden were also cases which established um, reimbursement rights uh, for a party who, or um, let's say a party has a separate property residence. Usually it's a residence, but it could be other assets, a separate property residence, such as a vacation home. And then they get married and the community during the marriage um, pays the mortgage and pays for improvements or other things. Um it could include property taxes and um, things like that. So this entitles the um, the community for reimbursement based on their contributions during the marriage to this separate property asset. Okay. So it's a pro tanto interest. You know, a spouse comes into the marriage with a separate property. Let's call it a house. Mm-hmm. There's a mortgage on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's value. There's equity in this property as the date of the marriage. Mm-hmm. And let's call it a 10-year marriage and uh, the community, meaning the husband and the wife's income is being used to pay the principal down on that mortgage payment. And then simultaneous with that, 
the house is increasing in value, mm -hmm. which means that the community and the separate are gaining more and more interest because it's a pro tanto interest. Right. And this decision, I think, does a really good job of explaining how that works for, for us. It yeah. Did, yes. That's why some of these things, you know, the, the decision may not be so surprising, but the discussion is meaningful to us so that we could understand and that we could explain to our clients better. So right. in this case, uh, I think that there was a understanding that there was a more Marsden. Now, more Marsdens aren't always going to last in these cases. You could pay for a mortgage for 20 years. And there could be no community interest for at least two reasons that I could think of. One is, is if the property doesn't appreciate, mm -hmm. like, you know, you don't get reimbursed for the, because it's kind of like rent, right? You know, and, and the, heck, the court kind of talks about, you know, the rent, you know, or the community's use of it and having to pay for that. But it, it has to appreciate in value. And the other thing is, is if, if there's a refinance during the marriage and they take out a loan and then spend it on something other than putting it back towards the equity or paying on the mortgage, then they're using the community money. They want to buy a car, vacation. They want to do other things. The community loses it. And I've had a couple of cases like that where back, and this is way before your time, it was before the collapse of the banks. Uh, homes were like skyrocketing and almost everybody was refinancing their uh, their mortgages so they could play, game, play. You know, they could buy cars and boats and things like that. In this one case, you know, they did it so often that by the time it was then there was there was zero. Sometimes it's negative value, you know, but it's zero value, you know, to the community. So, in any anyways, in this case, what we have is uh, more Marsden, but he wants something more. He's like property taxes. I want to be reimbursed for that, mm -hmm. right? And what did the court of appeal say? Um, so the court didn't agree agreed with the husband, not with the wife, or agreed with the wife, not the husband, and said you don't get reimbursement for um, or credit for uh, property taxes and um, what was the other one? Property taxes and um, the interest on the mortgage because that didn't actually um, help uh, build the equity in the house. Didn't um, pay down the principal. It, uh, when correct. you pay interest, you're not paying down the principal. So it's not growing the the equity in the home. Right. right? And the court also added that um, the community was using this house at that time. So technically, if we were to give the community credit for those those two things, then we would have to also consider its use of the property during the marriage. And the court says we're not going to go there. Right. Right. Okay. So the second part of this decision I thought was really interesting in that the forensic account... So, so Mom won on that one, right? Mm -hmm. She gets uh, she gets the uh, separate property interest in one half of the community. Dad, sorry, but you know you're not gonna get reimbursed for the for the taxes. Pretty significant thing for us to know. Mm -hmm. um, now, Dad wins on something. Mom loses on something, and that's going to be the more Mars than what it is. And what happened is is that the forensic accountant had to make estimates because sometimes all the paperwork's not there, mm -hmm. right? And so you have to be a, uh, the chief detective and look at specific things and kind of come up with some assumptions in order to calculate. And I, and I think that in cases that I've had in the past, I've always been frightened. You know, we've got, you know, a br some brilliant forensic accountants that we use. That, you know, I, I'll, I'll name one of them is Jennifer Magnus. You know, I love working with her. And she's done this before where we've looked at, you know, a scenario where a house was sold in the 1990s and then it was rolled the, the money was rolled over into another property and then there was a vacation rental and it gets really really complicated and you know not all the paperwork's there so they start looking at tax records 
and they start looking at things. So in this case, what what did the forensic uh, for dad do to make certain assumptions? So the forensic didn't have all of the numbers as we would normally want. So a couple of things that the forensic did was, um, I think, with calculating the property taxes. Um, I don't know if it was a male or female, but I think the name was Silva. Um, he looked at um, what the taxes paid between 2003 and 2015 were, and then he looked at um, the difference between um, some tax forms, and he admitted that his calculations were not exact numbers, but they're the best estimates that he could come up with. And he said it was fairly accurate, which is not always what you want to hear from a forensic accountant. Right. So the wife said that we shouldn't rely on these numbers because um, they weren't, you know, how do we know this was the value or these were correct at that time? Yeah. So the court's saying uh, the to, I mean, the wife is saying to the court of appeal, trial court, you erred mm -hmm. because you were relying on assumptions in making you know this this decision as to how much the more Marsden was. Uh, the Court of Appeal disagreed with the wife, right? Correct. The Court of Appeal relied on what the forensic had found and um, gave the husband credit for, I believe it was $7,000 for improvements and also, of course, for um, the mortgage payments made during the marriage. The exact amount that the forensic had wanted. Um, I believe said. so. Yeah. Yes. And so, so what was the reasoning behind that? Um, I think the court said that um, it didn't have to be exact and that um, the forensic did the best he could at that time with the numbers that he had. Um, so I don't think there was a lot of discussion on that, but um, I think the probably fairly accurate was also what the court um, stated when talking about the numbers and that they don't always have to be exact. Yeah, I'm always looking for the reasoning here. So here's what I got, and if I have this right, uh, this is the quoting from the Court of Appeal. We similarly reject wife's contention regarding Sutcliffe's appraisal. All this had to do with the appraisal because there was a question about the value of the home as well during certain things here that the forensic relied on. I think they used the appraisal value. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as the Supreme Court has explained, property valuation, though admittedly complex, is at bottom just an issue of fact about possible market prices. So I think that quote that they're quoting the Supreme Court, they're saying that that's a factual thing for the court to find. And they're not going to upset the trial court if the court makes a finding like that, so long as it's based on reasoning, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's, right. That, I think that's where it comes from. On this record, on this record, it was reasonable for the trial court to accept Silva's reliance on Sutcliffe's appraisal. Uh, it was also reasonable for the trial court to infer that the improvements increased the value of the towel property since husband testified the hot tub made mm -hmm. the property more marketable as a vacation rental property. So the way that I, what I'm walking away from this, and I, I don't know if you are as well, but it, it's significant because we don't have to worry about, you know, the exactness of things, you know, right. to think that we can't convince the court because that would be, I think, an unrealistic world, right? right? I mean, if you know, if the court could only make a decision on this and not say factually, I think there's some basis for this, then we'd be in a pickle, I think, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think so, so long as the forensic, you know, if, if he was on the stand and he had a, a reasonable way of explaining where the numbers came from, I think, and that's on the record, I don't think that the Court of Appeal would, would mess with that decision. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. 
Well, I think we learned a lot from this decision. Yeah, I, I've I've started seeing that I'm encountering a lot of issues in my cases with reimbursements and you know things like that. So I think it's always helpful to have more case law um, that that has facts similar to the cases we're dealing with. So yeah, and I think as you and I talked about before, is is that um, every case that involves property starts with uh, you know let's divide the assets. Let's think about the tax consequences. Let's talk about appraisals. And there's, you know, it, it could ver- be very complex. I mean, in the case that we just did with, it was with RSUs, uh, right. restricted stock units, which is very, very difficult. Very. But but the forensics getting into that and they could handle it and we settle those issues. And then after all that's done, we're dealing with reimbursement issues. And typically what I see is, is that you got a long list on both sides. I mean, it's as long as this table, you know, of this. And we, we had one client that, and, and the, the, her list was so long and I went through them and I'm like, okay, about three of those things are legal, right? right. But, but you have to deal with the reimbursement issues. And that's where the, like, the emotions come from a lot, right? And then as a division of property, the forks and knives and the plates and stuff like that. Personal you know? property. Yeah, yep. yeah, the yep. personal property, right. So anyways, uh, good job on that case. Uh, you know, I'm really glad that we were able to settle it and you really worked hard on it and you deserve a, you know, a pat on the back for that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, come back again. We want to uh, hear from you in the next appellate court decision. Thanks. Okay, Monty. Thank you. Thank you.